Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. I am awfully excited, as usual, to be uh, involved once again in our Salvation Series. We call it the Summer Salvation Series, but here we are spilling into the fall. But who's uh, keeping track at this point? Dr. Peter Kapsner is uh, with me as well. And, Peter, we're going to have a wonderful discussion today with Jim Wallace. Yeah, it's been just a really exciting series all the way throughout. And and the more I've gotten to know about Jim's background, the more excited I am about this particular episode. (laughs) I love that. You're you're wonderfully phony, but I love that. Jay Warner Wallace is a uh, he's a cold case homicide detective. He's retired from that business, but he's now a, one of the most popular national speakers and best-selling authors. And he is a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and also an adjunct professor of apologetics at uh, Biola. And he, his resume goes on and on. But he's been on the show a number of times, so we'll just get right to the point and uh, welcome him aboard. Jim, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate you. You're so kind to me. Yeah, well, thank you. You know, the the preaching and teaching of God reveals not only his nature, but his character. And the gospel is good, it's real, and it's true, and that's why people should believe it. But having said that, and this is my opening statement, then I'm not going to talk again, is (laughs) so many influences come into a person's life. Could it be their family of origin, what they're told, uh, the youth group they go to, what they're asked to believe, and all that. But are they believing what's true? Well, I'll tell you something. Uh, When you say it that way, it's it's so similar, um, it seems to me, to the way that we talk about truth and how we make a proper inference uh, with juries. So, so for example, it would be great, wouldn't it, if, if the entire thing always comes down to we present you know, 20 pieces of evidence, 100 pieces of evidence, and, and so these evidences are kind of like pushed into a machine <laughs> called the jury room, and they all just spit out inferences based purely on, on and limited on just what they saw in the uh, you know, 10 weeks, let's say, that we did the trial. But almost all the time, the things that, that, that lean you toward making the decision are not strictly the evidences that we show you because it turns out that, that how you're wired – um, what your predispositions are, what your personal history is, um, what you like and dislike, what you hope for the future. These are the things that often – this is why you know, 12 people can hear the same uh, uh, evidence set and uh, disagree. There can be different inferences, even though they all were there to hear the same thing for all those weeks. Why does that happen? Because it turns out that all those other things we talk about um, are sometimes the, the tail that wags the dog when we make a decision. As a matter of fact, that's why we spend time in a voir dire process trying to pick the 12 jurors plus, let's say, four alternates that uh, will do the best job at trying to resist all that stuff and be – we always say be fair and impartial right, with all the evidence. And so, but, but most of the time, we know that there's going to be other factors that, that uh, weigh into how they make a decision. So, Jim, from your background then, when you uh, grew up in maybe a different version of the faith and the Mormon faith, and I think about other people that probably went to camps and had different kinds of experiences consistent with Bill's comment, how, how do we begin to evaluate whether the, the specific claims of, uh, of the Christian faith are true versus the fact, hey, that's just how I grew up. That's what I was conditioned to believe. Well, you know, and I had, so for me in Los Angeles, you know, my whole family, there really weren't any Christians in my family. And there weren't even any Mormons for many, many years. My dad's second marriage, uh, his second wife uh, became a Mormon after they married. And then, uh, you know, my dad's a very committed atheist, but but she became a Mormon. And then they had six kids together that she raised, uh, all of them LDS. So the only uh, kind of background I had 
when I first started looking at Christian, I was about 35 when I first started looking, as I had six siblings, half-siblings, that were uh, Mormon. And everybody else I knew was, was an unbeliever. And so I, I, that was kind of the background with which I began this investigation. I'll tell you one thing that, that's interesting about it. Let, let's, let me give you an analogy from, from my, my, my detective work that may be helpful here. So let's say, for example, and I've had a lot of cases like this where my victim, there's like a number of suspects out there that I'm looking at simultaneously for the crime. So let's say my victim is a woman, and um, I'm looking – a witness says that they saw – you know, just briefly saw running away from the crime scene a male of about six feet height uh, with brown hair. So I identify, you know, six guys that this woman was dating at the time who are males of about six feet tall with brown hair. And they are all very similar. I mean, they all have those things in common. They're all men, they're all six feet tall, and they all know personally my victim. But it turns out as I investigate them, someone's going to emerge with with a unique set of characteristics, right? It turns out there's only one of these six who actually had an ongoing kind of argument with my victim and, and had a ba- kind of a, a, an up-and-down relationship with my victim. In fact, at times had been abusive with my victim, and on the eve of the murder, he threatened my victim. There's only one like that. He stands out from all the rest, even though they have many things in common. He has a unique set of features, a unique as- a, a characteristic, and that unique characteristic is is going to be something important to me to look at. And as a matter of fact, it makes sense. It's not only is it unique that he has that characteristic, it, it makes sense that somebody like that would probably be responsible for this murder rather than somebody who didn't have that characteristic, right? So so he stands out because he's unique. Well, as I look at the all the different theistic worldviews and their claims about what it is that saves us, one stands out uniquely. Every other uh, theistic worldview argues on the basis of some type of works-based salvation, something you do, and you must do these things in order to be saved. And then there's one that stands out uniquely in a different direction. It's the only one that offers – it says basically it's nothing you do. It's everything that God does and nothing that you can do to save yourself. So already I'm I'm interested because it it stands out uniquely like that one suspect, and like that suspect, this makes the most sense. If there is a God – that is powerful enough to blink everything into existence from nothing. Why would I think that God would be impressed with anything I could do? If there's a God who has the power to eliminate moral imperfection, why would I think he'd be overwhelmed by what little I could do from a moral perspective, right? So so it turns out there's this unique feature of the Christian worldview that sets it apart, number one. And then number two makes sense because you would expect that if there's a God like that, this would be the kind of offer that he would make. Not an offer that says, hey, I'm going to be impressed with something you do, but an offer that says actually nothing you do approximates anything I do, (laughs) and you are not me. And it turns out if there is going to be salvation for you, it would have to be offered from me. And that makes sense if there's a God of that kind of power, right? So so there's something about the Christian worldview that even from an investigative perspective sticks out for me and why I was interested in looking at it because it was uniquely different and it had explanatory power. That's a great, uh, great illustration, uh, Jim. I, I would love for you just to let our listeners know, too, when it comes to a, a courtroom um, debate, how important circumstantial evidence is. 
Yeah, it's, 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 you know, people often say, well, I'm a scientific person. I have to be able to use some type of observable, uh, repeatable science in order to determine that something is true. And, and that's never the case in, in our criminal trials because these are not uh, – we cannot line the people back up again and reenact or, or you know, recreate or, or you know, kind of watch to see if the murder takes place again. I mean, that's not how we do it. We use an aspect of science that's forensic. That it basically is used to determine what kind, what when the, once the effect has been caused, this type of science helps us to investigate the effect. It was not repeatable, observable science in the sense that we can't run an experiment, but we can tell from the effect. And sometimes those effects are, are uh, very, very powerful. And there's only two forms of evidence. There's direct evidence and there's indirect evidence. Direct evidence is eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses who say, I, can, I saw it. I saw everything happen. I know exactly how – I can identify the person who did it. Well, then you have a direct evidence case. Uh, on the other hand, if you don't have an eyewitness, you have what's known as an indirect evidence case, and, and it's also known as circumstantial. Indirect evidence is also known as circumstantial evidence. And, and you might think, well, okay, what does that include? Well, it includes everything else. So uh, DNA, that's going to be indirect evidence. That's going to be circumstantial evidence. What about like fingerprints? That's circumstantial evidence. What about like behaviors or statements made? Those are circumstantial. What about forensic evidence based on like gunshot residue or other material comparisons? That's all uh, circumstantial evidence. And so what we're doing with that kind of evidence is trying to make an inference, like what happened at this event in the past. So what's great about Christianity is it's different. Again, this is that unique feature of Christianity. Not only is it unique in the sense that it it tells us uh, it offers a, a, a salvation that is not based on our good works. It also is unique in the sense that it's grounded in an event in history. So it's not like the wise prophetic statements of Buddha or the wise wisdom statements of Baha'u'llah, which could never be tested really. It's actually grounded in an event that occurred in the past, the resurrection. And we could test that even using the kinds of evidences we would use circumstantially to, to test such a thing. And so, Jim, with that, too, when you talk about circumstantial evidence, are there specific things about some of the other theistic faiths that you reference that you just say, you know, this just gets reeled out, the, ruled out, the, the lack of evidence or something about the evidence itself is just too easy to poke a hole in? And when I think about maybe the Islamic faith or the Hindu faith, are there things that just simply stand out as saying, well, this, this is such a fantastical claim even compared to the resurrection? Well, this is what's great about this approach is that it really works if you're looking at a theistic worldview that is grounded in an event or a series of events. And not every theistic worldview is grounded that way. So if you're somebody who worships, say, uh, Krishna or uh, Zoroaster, well, those are not events that are based on a – those are not uh, worldviews that are based on a series of, of events that – if they're not true, if the resurrection, for example, under Christianity is not true, then Christianity falls. So it's really based on an event. But other worldviews are Based. Like, for example, Mormonism rests on claims in the Book of Mormon that, uh, are, that transpire a thousand years on the North American continent from 600 B.C. to 400 A.D. If those events did not occur, then, Christian, then uh, Mormonism is false. And so it can be tested in a way the same way we would test Christianity. So, yes, there are principles we could use to test other worlds. As a matter of fact, I teach this class at Viola, uh, a cold case Christianity class, where I ask my students to test these other historically grounded theistic worldviews to see if they pass the test. And I think all of us ought to do that because, again, it, we're looking for the true door through which we can enter into God's presence. And so the truth about which door is actually the right door is, is important. And your, and your emotional perspective really does not make a door true if it's false. And so we need to know which door is actually the true door. Yeah, that's so smart. Really. We're going to take a little break. Uh, Jay Warner Wallace is our guest. You could go to Cold Case 
Christianity.com to learn more about Jim, his amazing resources, many of which are free, and you should you should uh, head over there ASAP and check it out. We'll take a short break and be right back. All right, we are back with Jim Wallace. He is uh, our guest for our Summer Salvation Series, which has now spilled into the fall, but nobody's complaining as far as I, <laughs> as far as I know, I mean, which no, is, it's which is always good. Yeah. And we're coming up, of course, on the anniversary of 9-11, and I'm thinking if you tried to write a book on the history of New York and you left that out, your book wouldn't sell it because everyone would think you were a complete idiot. Right. Yet the gospel has got uh, eyewitness accounts, and it has stood the test over time, and there's no other book that has changed the lives of more people than that. Yeah, it, absolutely. And even just some of the the historicity of the idea of the resurrection, Jim, I know you, you've talked about this in the past a bit, that you make a case that this resurrection did actually happen. And if it didn't happen, salvation wouldn't be possible. So I would love for you to kind of get into that a little bit about what what does the eyewitness evidence show related to the resurrection? Well, I mean, this, this is exactly the claim that, that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15, right? That if this isn't true, if the resurrection isn't true, this is something that was uh, uh, important to him. And you read 1 Corinthians 15, you'll see how important it is. He says, if we didn't, if this didn't happen, you've been lied to. We've, we told you something that isn't true. We have been false witnesses, he says. And he says that that means that you have no hope of your own resurrection. And also, you, you know, this is, why would you trust anything we said? And so this is, was, was the claim that I thought um, – was really the claim that needed to be tested first. I mean, it all comes down to this claim. And that makes sense, right? Because other versions of of the Jesus story from other worlds, like for example, Islam, there is a place for Jesus in Islam. He's a prophet. He's a prophet of status even greater than Muhammad. But um, he is not risen from the grave. He did not resurrect. That's very different. Uh, the, his claims to deity are, are uh, that's very different. Uh, the fact that he could rise from the, the grave puts him in a different category. Muhammad didn't do that. Buddha didn't do that. Nobody else did that. He's he is. This is the guy. So this is an important claim that we would have to test, right? And and the question then becomes, well, how do we test such a claim? Now now most of the time, we we have a set of ancient accounts describing the claim. And so the, the question is, do you trust those? Look, if everybody trusted those accounts, and by the way, if the Gospels contained um, you know, the teaching of Jesus, the travels of Jesus, the friends of Jesus and conversation with Jesus, but it was absent any miracles, no miracles, no walking on water, no virgin birth, no rising from the grave, no ascension into heaven, just the teaching of Jesus and the interactions of Jesus with the people in history, nobody would doubt it for a second in terms of its veracity. Nobody would. It would be probably better attested than any other ancient document, and we would just say, okay, great, this, we know one thing for sure. This Jesus guy was smart, and here's what he taught, and we know he lived, and there'd be no doubts. But what causes the kind of consternation you hear and you see is that, that these claims are more than just you know, wise statements. They, incl- they include supernatural events and at a time in which most people in the you know, kind of world in which we live are hesitant to embrace overtly supernatural explanations – that's why we have people saying, well, it can't be true. It can't be true. What's, what's making it un- unbelievable is the fact that it includes what they consider to be unbelievable events given the generation in which we live. But my question is, you know, can we test the book? And if we do test the book, if, if it's reliable in every other – it's going to come down to you saying, well, look, I can test the book and it's reliable in every other way, but it contains supernatural explanations. And then it's going to come down to you deciding if that bias you have against the supernatural is entirely warranted or not. 
And so for me, as I read the Gospels and I tested them, there's four ways we test um, eyewitnesses in criminal trials, and I used those four uh, kind of criteria to test the Gospels. Uh, they pass the test, but they include supernatural stuff, and so I, would have, I was still hesitant. Uh, but then when you think about it, I mean, as an atheist, I believed that there was a cause outside of space, time, and matter that caused the universe to come into existence. And that's just based on my trust in Big Bang cosmology that argues that everything in the universe, all space, time, and matter, came into existence from not space, not time and matter. It came into existence from nothing. And that is the claim of secular astrophysicists and cosmologists who, who, who support what's called the standard cosmological model, which is Big Bang cosmology. So they already believe there is something, a cause, sufficiently powerful outside of space, outside of time and matter, because those things did not exist until the universe began to exist. There is a cause out there that could cause the, all of the universe to come into existence from nothing, <laughs> no space, no time, no matter. So already, if you are somebody who's a non-believer and you believe that the standard cosmological model is true, you've already stepped out into something extra natural as an explanation, something outside. Because what nature is is just space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. But now you're outside of space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. So how do you explain this? And, and if there is a cause outside of the universe that is powerful enough to create everything from nothing. Well, then the resurrection is a small potatoes kind of a miracle. The, the Genesis 1, that's the miracle of miracles right there. And it makes sense also that if you have that kind of power, you have the power to eliminate moral imperfection. And if you have that kind of power, well, then why would I expect there to be a system in place in which I need to attain some level of moral perfection, which I know I can't attain, to, what, impress a God who is morally perfect? This is an oil and water problem. And, and the only solution to that is that you, you cannot be expected to work your way toward him. You'd, you'd have to be carried home, uh, probably kicking and screaming against your will because you just you're, – you're, you're, our basic nature is to reject God, and you see this right now in culture, right? We're in a culture right now that says, hey, if I, I, I want to be able to, to, to love who I want to love, have sex with who I want to have sex with. Um, I want to have the freedom to, to, to do what I want to do with my time. Um, I don't want to be told anything. Uh, I don't. I want to. I want to be God, basically, and I certainly don't want there to be another God. And and so you see, this is what's happening in culture: is that people are not running toward God; they want to make themselves as God. And when that happens, then it seems to me that the system that's going to be in place will be the system that utterly transforms you on the basis of grace. And that is what Christianity offers. And that seems to be a, a uniquely a unique feature of the Christian worldview. Jim, would you speak to pe- people who are listening that have a lot of unanswered questions about Christianity? Well, you're like, look, I've, I've got unanswered questions. We ask this question of juries. We say, look, are you the kind of person who has to have every question answered before I can put you on this jury and you can render a verdict? Yeah, you know, I think I need, I need to have – I'm the kind of a person who wants to know how my question is answered. Well, then you're excused. There's no, there's no way I can put you on a jury because I've never been able to answer every question. As a matter of fact, a lot of the big questions you think are probably necessary before you can render a verdict, I will probably – I've had cases where I can't even tell you how he did it, where he did it, when he did it, maybe not even why he did it, but I can demonstrate that he did it. And so you're going to have to be able to move and render a verdict even though you have unanswered questions or some – some group of questions that seem unanswerable. And that's the, by the way, you're already doing that. You're already doing that in every aspect of your life. 
you don't even know how your car works or what, 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 what <laughs> might have sure. to catch on fire when you're driving it down the road, right? I mean, you flip that switch on your on your uh, on your wall to turn the lights on. When uh, all across America every day, someone flips a switch and their and their house burns down. But you don't even know. You have you act. You'd be paralyzed if you had to have total certainty about everything before you could move. You would be paralyzed because you'd be afraid of the possibilities. And that's why the standard of proof is not beyond a possible doubt. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. So that means you're going to have some unanswered questions, but we're going to get you close. We're going to give you an evidence trail that brings you in the right direction and points you to the answer but requires you to take a step of trust at the end of the trail toward the verdict. And this is what Christianity does. Is it, it, that's, we call that step of faith, a step of faith and trusting that what I've decided is true. And you know, this is why even jurors love it when afterwards at the sentencing hearing, let's say, uh, defendants confess. They love it because they look. They 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 found them guilty, but but they also love the fact that their 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 findings are justified because even they, after finding them guilty, still had unanswered questions, and then it kind of resolves it. That's why whenever I have somebody confess as part of a jury, as part of a plea, a plea deal, I make sure that as part of the confession, he tells us how he did. It. He starts to answer some of the questions that people will have. About what happened, because I know that that even though people will be glad he confessed to it, they'll still have unanswered questions. And uh, it says, my hope is that he'll be able to help us answer those. When we think of our little human forty nine cc brain, and we put that against the the God of the universe who created everything, should there be any question that we're gonna have unanswered questions. We're going to think that there's some things that I'm never going to understand, and that's okay. Well, this is part of the issue about solving the problem of evil, too, right? Like part of it is that we think, hey, how can there be an all-loving God who is all-powerful but allows evil? Well, that's we've created this dilemma by, by posing the problem that, that way, where we say we've got an all-loving, all-power. We've left off one of the most key features of this God, which makes it sound like, yeah, there's no way he would allow evil if he's all-loving and all-powerful. But you've forgotten to say that he's also all-knowing. He knows the future. He knows every outcome of every domino that could fall and every way it can fall. So when something happens here and you think, why would God allow that? You don't know what the bazillionth domino is. You know, uh, 10 years from now, 100 years from now, that will fall a certain way because something happened today, good or bad in your moment, right? And because we are eternal creatures, not temporal creatures, and God knows the future, knows everyone's future, we have to grant him that he knows something that we don't know. And that ends up solving the problem of evil for so much because we've, we've created a problem because we've only listed two of God's attributes, his power and his love. But we haven't listed his wisdom. And sometimes as parents, you know, you allow your kids to do to suffer something because you're wise enough to know that there's an outcome you're looking for or what's around the corner if you didn't, if you stopped this, if you intervened. So you allow it to happen because of your wisdom. And, and later on, your kids, when they get a little bold, they go, okay, I'm so glad you did that. I get it. And, and so that's part of the dilemma here, too, is, yeah, if there's a, a God who is all, all wise, that all, has all the wisdom, then we have to at least bend our knee that we, we, he knows something that we don't know. Yeah. We're going to take a little break. Uh, Jim Wallace is our guest on our Salvation Summer Series, and it's now fall. But who's keeping track? You can go to coldcasechristianity.com to learn more about Jim. After a short break, Peter Kapster and myself will be right back. Welcome back to the show. We're so happy to have Jim Wallace as our guest on our our Salvation Series. And during the break, Peter, you had a 
incredibly good question. I'd like you to ask Jim right now. <laughs> well, you know, Jim, it was just so fun to hear about your evidence and, and how you think through whether or not the resurrection was true and that Christianity really does rise and fall on that fact. And I think about as we're talking about salvation so often, can, can you tie for our listeners the idea of the resurrection and salvation together? Because sometimes I think we only think of salvation in terms of the cross event, which we should. But but how do we think about the resurrection related to salvation if resurrection is the claim that we need for Christianity to stand? Well, you know, it could be if, if there was no resurrection and no promise of a resurrection of our own. And that's the difference, right? So so this is salvation is not just a promise that um, uh, all things are good when you die. Uh, it's a promise of eternal life with God. Um, and that is what salvation is, right? It's not just a promise, of, let's say, of your best life now. It's a promise of eternity with God. And what demonstrates that that eternity is available for us is that Jesus took the first step. He, he, he basically demonstrated that through his resurrection, that promise of a resurrection of our own is real. As he died and rose from the grave, so will we. And that this is weird if you think about it, because most Christians take it for granted that we're going to have a resurrection body. Like we know it from Scripture, but most of the time when you think of heaven, it's almost always described as a kind of um, spiritual experience, right? Like, you know, and why do we need bodies? After, couldn't we just, if we are soulish creatures that possess bodies, then why couldn't it just be that once we die, we have a soulish experience with God? Why would we ever need to be returned to some physical capacity, some resurrection body? And this resurrection body, Paul tells us, will be different than the one we have today, which is good for all of us who are now past our prime, right? So <laughs> I don't want this one back. I want the old one back. So, so yeah, I get that. So it'll be different, and it'll be as the seed is to the plant. I, I, I understand that, but or as the, uh, the plant is to the seed. Uh, but, but the question is, why do we need it at all? What is it about the resurrection? Do, why do we need to be on a new earth? Why couldn't all of this just be, uh, if, if God is spirit, um, why couldn't our experience with him be entirely spiritual, immaterial, in other words? And that's a very fascinating claim that Christianity makes, which again is also a, a kind of an unusual claim about the future for us. But there is something about, uh, we recognize that there is something about your experiences uh, physically, tactily, your sensory experiences that require a physical body in order to experience those things. And there is great joy and wisdom and experiences that are available to us that God will make available to us again. Um, we will not be God. God has no need for these kinds of experiences, but as created beings, he knows that we do. And he makes a promise, a future promise. And so salvation is not just a matter of right standing before God, which of course it is, but it's also a promise of a future life with God. And that makes so much sense of the mess that we experience today. Because if you think about it, I always put it that way, where we talk about most people see their lives as line segments. You know, the that's a line segment that starts at one point, then it runs for a certain amount of distance, and then it ends at another point. And that would be like our life running for, like, say, 90 years from birth to death. But that's not the promise of Christianity. It's a different geometry altogether. It's a ray. The idea that it starts at birth, runs through the second point called death, and then extends off infinitely into the future. That's what rays do. They start at a point, go through a second point, and then they run off indefinitely in one direction. And that's what the promise is of, of, of the gospel. It's that our life um, is to be measured not by whatever happens in this 90 years. And, and that takes so much pressure. So, so, for example, there's lots of us who have had you know, crummy experiences in the first year of our life or the first 10 years of our life. But by the time we're 60, 
we've we've navigated it. We we don't see it the same way anymore. We don't like only a small part of my life. If I, the first year was bad, only a small part of it compared to the last fifty nine years. Uh, you know, I have to measure everything on the basis of how long my life is. And so you might have a terrible surgery at the first six months of your of your life, but by the time you're four, you've forgotten about it. By the time you're fifty four, it's certainly in your rearview mirror. Well, think about it. If, if, if life as promised through the resurrection is a ray, if that's the true nature of our life, as created as Christian, the Christian worldview argues, well, then, then that first 90 years you spend here on planet Earth, by the time you're a thousand years into eternity, that 90 years is not all that significant. And by the time you're a million years into eternity, that 90 years is a blip of a second compared to the million years. And so you could have the 90 of the worst years imaginable, but again, it's the promise of the ray that changes the the equation for evil. And we have to sometimes remember that, you know, like we I can't imagine that God would allow me to suffer this way. Well, in that moment when that infant is being operated on, I'm sure the infant, if, if, if he had the wisdom to speak, would say, I can't imagine that God would allow this to happen to me. But by the time you're four, you've already forgotten it. The same thing is going to happen here. So the resurrection uh, makes an offer about salvation, which is different than just forgiveness and right standing. It's a promise of eternity, uh, and that's why I think it's so powerful. Hmm. I think about those early Christians, Jim, when you talk about that way, that their life was pretty much rubbish the entire time. I mean, they were getting killed for their faith and just really didn't have a lot of hope in this life. And what you're offering sounds like just a, a powerful invitation of a future salvation that then brings us hope in the present. Yeah, I think it's Tertullian who said, you know, what can they really do to us? You know, I mean, that, what could they really do to us that 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 is not uh, already answered, you know, by God? And this is why you saw people. There was a, definitely a culture in the earliest Christians, the students of the eyewitnesses, the students of the students of the eyewitnesses. Those first two, three generations knew that what they believed, especially before the Edict of Milan and the Edict of Thessalonica, the first edicts in the Roman Empire that, that either ended hostility toward Christians and then Thessalonica actually created the, the religion of Peter, you know, the, 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 the Christian religion became the religion of the empire. But before those edicts, I mean, Christians were living in a culture that, that was, was patient with, with their religious beliefs. And m- m- many of the emperors would allow you to be an, just another god in the pantheon of gods that had been conquered by the Roman Empire. But you also had to bend your knee to the Roman pantheon. And that was the thing that Christians refused to do, and that's why they were in, in particularly irri- – Jews were also irritating in this way because they would not do it. But Jews had played some roles, and some of the early emperors had kind of helped them out a little bit in the region, and Christians hadn't. And so you, you saw Christians would suffer for their faith because they refused to bend their knee and accept all the Roman pantheon of gods. And, and they again, they were willing to do that because they, they knew that in the end, it wasn't just you know, a fear of a bad life now. It was the promise of eternity, and they knew that their lives didn't end in the second dot. All right, Jim, I have a question which is going to come first with a quote by Dallas Willard. Um, and he said, if we merely think of the gospel as the work of Jesus during a few moments on a cross during his earthly existence, we will miss the grand entirety of his mission on earth. Most crucially, we will miss the essence of God as he is in himself, including his Trinitarian relationality and the ways in which he provides for all of those who are created by him. Now, all I really wanted to do was work in the words 
Trinitarian <laughs> relationality, which I've accomplished yeah. now. But yeah, maybe you awesome. would comment on the impact of the Trinity and salvation. Well, okay, so so this is there's so much debate right now. Uh, it's interesting to me. I, I've noticed more in the last probably two years about our, people who would argue um, against the triune nature of God as Christians. Um, they still identify as Christians, but would argue against the triune nature of God. And here's the problem you have. Look, the, tri- the Trinity, the triune nature of God, the Trinity, as we call it, that word does not appear in, in Scripture anywhere. But there's lots of theological truths that don't appear by the language we use today in the New Testament. That means nothing to me. The real issue is, do we have good reason on the basis of evidence in Scripture to believe that God is triune in nature? And I think you'll see over and over and over again that the attributes of God, His omniscience, omnipresence, omnipresence omnibenevolence, all the, at- the classic attributes of God are always applied to all three, the Spirit, the God, the Father, and Jesus. We have to figure out how could this be true. Um, if, and, and, and so anytime you see that someone steps away from a Trinitarian formulation, a tr- in other words, steps away from the tr- Trinity, what they end up doing is knocking Jesus down to something that's created. If he's not God, if he's not part of the triune Godhead, then he's a creation of God, and he loses his status as deity. And what you'll almost always see in any historic worldview that denies the Trinity is that Jesus ends up being something less than God. And and that's where I think that is, is most of us as Christians at least uh, would probably step off right because of, and and historically, the creeds of Christendom classically have asked for if maintained certain principles they would say hey if you don't believe this about God about Jesus you really can't call yourself a Christian and that really starts with I think the deity of Christ right and so I'm not inclined to step out. And start to, to name Jesus like the Jehovah's Witnesses do as simply the first created being or the, a, a, a being of, of first order, a created being of first order. Uh, he's not created. And there's something about the triune nature of God that we recognize, right? We, we say that God is love. Okay, Allah, if you can't say God, Allah is love, you could say he, he, he loves. That's not what the Bible says about Yahweh. God is love. Well, how can he be love? Well, because he didn't learn how to love after creating um, the humans. That, that's what would have to be the case for Allah. Allah would not know what love is until he creates the first being with whom he could be in a loving relationship. On the other hand, the God that we worship is from all eternity in that loving relationship of the Trinity. So we can say accurately that God is love because he has always been in that relationship. So if we want to say that God is love, I think we're, 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 that's one of the ways that – one of the reasons why the Trinity actually allows us to do that because he's always been in that loving relationship. And, and that love, Jim, does, is that what sets Christian sort of salvation and right relationship with God then apart from the other major world religions when we're talking about the salvation that's offered? Well, look, if he's just sending another created being to die for us, that's horrific. Who, who, would, who would ask for one human to be sacrificed for another? If on the other hand, Jesus is part of the triune Godhead and steps down into his creation. He's not offering one human for another, even if that human is really great. He's offering himself for us. So interesting. Jim uh, Wallace is our guest. We are still in our Summer Salvation series But we are going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to have uh, more discussion on the topic of salvation, which is what we've been at for seven or eight weeks, and we're loving it. We'll take a break and be right back. 
Welcome back to the show. So glad to be uh, having Jim Wallace as our guest in our Salvation Series. Jim uh, is an apologetist and a theologian and a professor and a teacher and a author and a cold case homicide detective. It's, it's that last one that I want. No, totally. I, I want the I want badge. I, I totally do. I want to start by busting some heads. Maybe <laughs> start with yours. <laughs> That's super fair. <laughs> that would be fair, wouldn't it? I really would yeah. be, yes. And you'd want, probably do the same to me, right? Well, well you know, I, I would operate in well, love. Like around, Jim around, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Jim, when we're um, thinking of having dialogues with people who are hostile to the gospel, maybe they call themselves atheists or agnostic or, or nuns or whatever they call mm-hmm. them nowadays— um, we we hear the the common uh, thought that they say, "Look at, I don't believe in a god, and you don't believe in all these gods. You believe in one more god than me." So, um, what what do we say when people want to try to paint us in a corner and say, I, "I'm just believing one less god than you"? Well, it's kind of, hey, well, so so it couldn't couldn't the same thing happen at a criminal trial? You know, where, where I could say, "Hey." Um, um, I've got the suspect sitting here, and uh, I'm just believing in one more suspect than the defense here. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I, this is look. In the end, it's going to come down to: Do I have any good reason to believe that this 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 God exists? And and I get it that this, there's a sense. And by the way, I'm just, I'm writing a new book. You know, I, so my whole background was I I came up through the arts. Uh, I have a bachelor's degree in, in design and a master's degree in architecture, and then I started a career in law enforcement and. Really tested what we could, you know, do what we could accomplish by taking an artistic approach with juries, taking an artistic approach with uh, how to communicate these ideas, right? And and then I got a master's degree in, in theological studies from uh, Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary as I was getting ready to pastor young people, and I felt like. A lot of these questions young people have uh, are really deeply theological questions. Even the questions they have about their own life, uh, which doesn't seem like it's you know, part of the church, like I'm out in school and I'm having this experience with my friends. Well, it turns out they're, they're, they've got questions, but those questions uh, are – theology provides answers for those questions. And so I think the more that we understand something about, about theology, the, the better off we are to be able to answer the questions of skeptics and of young people who are wondering, why do I – we just talked a minute ago about the triune nature of God, right? And we talked before that about the nature of our resurrection body. Like, why do we have, need a resurrection body? Why does the body matter at all? I think it's a weird claim that Christians make that in the future, in heaven, or not in heaven, but let's say uh, in our eternal, eternal experience with God that we will be reunited to a physical body. Well, there are young people right now. This is Gen Z. Is, they self-report as the loneliest generation of any generation of, of uh, believers or really of any generation in America right now. They are more likely to report depression, uh, loneliness, uh, really loneliness. This is the generation that has more access to their friends digitally. I mean more access through Snapchat, through all – than any other generation. I mean, it used to be I'd actually go somewhere to see my friends. <laughs> These folks can see them at the end of their arm, you know, the, and, the, and the glowing rectangle. So, so the, how is it that they feel lonely? Well, it's answered theologically because you know the Christian worldview explains it. There's a reason why God thinks your body is important, and you can have all the non-physical interaction you want with all of your friends, but until you are in their physical presence, in the presence of their other their, their body, you will feel alone. It is that physical proximity to other material bodies that is part of uh, the, the loneliness equation. And that is explained by a Christian worldview. It turns out that Christianity has one of the best explanations for that because your, your, your body is important, and God knows that well enough to, to make sure that you have one after you are, you know, uh, after you die and when you are in eternity with him. 
So there's something about um, um, theology that has the ability to answer questions that even uh, young skeptics might ask. And if the evidence is good, that Christian, if, if Christianity not only is, can be uh, uh, tested the way that we talk about testing witnesses, right? So we could test the Gospels to see if the resurrection actually occurred. What Do we trust that these uh, accounts are reliable eyewitness accounts? Let's face it, the claims of the resurrection would be unknown to us if it wasn't for the Gospels. So in the end, it's going to come down to testing the Gospels. So, okay, can we test those? Yes. And then does the resulting worldview – have explanatory power. Does it, does it explain the world the way it really is? So that in the end, our experience of the world starts to make sense given this worldview. Remember, every worldview does the same thing. It asks the question, you know, how do we get here? Why is it so messed up? And how do we fix it? And every worldview offers answers to those three questions. So if I'm under a Marxist worldview, well, how do we get here? Well, we are just evolved creatures that you know came about through natural uh, processes. What's what's messed up? How's it? How does, what's what? How how to get broken? Well, this it's the really the unfair dis- distribution of wealth. Well, how do we fix that? Well, we just redistribute the wealth. So every worldview has answers to those questions. Our worldview is all about creation, the fall, and redemption. And it turns out that creation, the fall, and redemption seems to be the underlying pattern behind pretty much every movie that's ever been made, every story that's ever been written. Um, there's a reason for that. It's, it's, there's a thing called Christ figures in literature in which the attributes of Jesus are imported into the main character. Of you, You'd be amazed. I'm making a list of these for my next book. And you'd be amazed at how many of the world's most from neo in in the matrix to you know uh, any number of of superheroes in marvel in marvel movies they are christ figures they 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 represent they come about through some unnatural means from they they are they have an obscure childhood that's not really known much about them they have incredible power they die to save the world they are somehow restored or resurrected i mean these are things that these, these are are repeating themes in fiction and they repeat because it turns out that I think G- that Christianity explains the world the way we really experience it, and we cannot help but re- repeat what we experience and know is true. And so I, I think Christianity is powerful in the sense that it can be tested, and it explains the world the way it really is. Mm, you know, and Jimmy references part of that too, just the idea that we end up living or can live in, in a new kind of family of God and right relationship. And it's, it's an aspect of salvation I've never really thought about before, that the idea that as we embrace God's salvation, we actually begin to live in a new kind of community. It, it's part of the salvation even of our relationships with one another. Oh, there's no doubt about it. And I'm always hesitant, right, to, to, um, to, to stretch um, notions of salvation into our be, beyond the promise of eternal life. But, of course, they are promises about something that is renewed and restored, a renewing of our mind, as Paul says, in this life as well. The kingdom of heaven is here now. It's uh, not, you know, what, what, it's not just the future. It's, it's a promise for today. But so much of the prosperity doctrine, so much of the prosperity gospel has, and, and progressive Christianity has kind of switched this. And so that the only reason why Jesus came was to provide an example for the life we could live today, to provide this example that we could then live. And, you know, that means that we should be involved in, in other issues here socially. And all. look, the, in the end, the resurrection provides for us, number one, the authority of Jesus, and two, the promise of an eternity with God. 
And, of course, it's that sacrifice that he died the death that we deserved um, and could not die for ourselves unless we just were willing to die without God's grace and without a promise of the future. So I'm always hesitant because I see how this can be distorted to, to, to think much, to allow myself even to think much about what the promise of salvation does for me today because I don't want it to become this kind of what's in it for me now kind of attitude. But it turns out that, yes, of course, uh, the kingdom of heaven is here now, and we can experience that relationship with God today. It's not like we're just okay, we just set up a, a bank account that pays future dividends. No, actually, this is um, it, it pays dividends right now. But that isn't really, you know, I, again, I'm always, because I see how that can be twisted, I'm always a little bit hesitant to, 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 to camp on that. Does that make sense? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Jim, it's so important where people place their faith. Of course, I want them to place their faith and trust in Christ. Uh, but there's sometimes you have people that say, "Well, I, I don't have I don't have faith," and I think, "Well, of course you have faith. It's just it's where you've placed it." Uh, Jeremiah 17 talks about that beautifully. But um, one of my favorite illustrations you have, and I know this would be a powerful thing to add into the discussion today, is the uh, illustration of the uh, bulletproof vest on the firing range. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a connection between the degree to which you are willing to trust something in difficult times and the degree to which you know it is uh, evidentially true. And so if you're not quite sure and you've, you've never really even tested it, you've never even really examined Christianity, and you're a Christian, you call yourself a Christian, but you've never really kind of looked at why this is true. You just accepted it from your parents or you were raised in a certain setting in which it was everybody accepted it. Um, well, then, then you have a different approach when, when, difficult, when times are tough. Um, so uh, this, the story I always tell is that I worked a case that was remarkable to me because I was working in an officer-involved shooting, and this officer he got himself in, in a position where the suspect had drawn – the suspect's weapon on the officer before the officer could even pull his he didn't even have his hand near his his gun so he was stuck there and you know this happens in seconds but the suspect is pointing the suspect's gun at the officer's chest from about maybe seven or eight feet away and um you know think about your social distancing right now it's not a long distance (laughs) from each person so so you're pointing a gun at you your arm can probably expand three feet of that so so he, he was stuck, and he just tried to think about what – he knew he had options. He could duck. He could hit the deck. He could rush the guy. He could he, – he decided in that moment because he was wearing a bulletproof vest, and he knew from watching the vest being uh, tested in the range that when we shoot at the vest and you can see that it stops bullets, he knew that his vest could stop this bullet. It's going to hurt, but, but he knew it's not going to penetrate the vest. So rather than panic, he just decided to tense up his stomach muscles and take the first round while he's getting his gun up to return fire. And so he just stood still, uh, and he took the first round. Now, what's interesting about that is that it's because he had such strong evidential certainty in what the vest could do that he had at least demonstrated the appearance of calm right in that situation. (laughs) And that's where I think that our young people need to be brought into this, this truth through the door of why is it true rather than through the door of, well, we're all doing this at a camp and it's Sunday night and we've all been up here talking about Jesus for three days and now we're having this emotional worship evening and now we're being asked to to decide if this is true. Well, if we come in it through the the path of evidence, well, then when you're not having that emotional experience, when you're having a bad day and there's no one there to sing you a song or to be in community – on a Sunday night on the top of the mountain, 
you're going to stand firm and calm because it's grounded in something other than your emotional experience. It's grounded in something that is evidentially demonstrable. And that's where I think we want to take young people because the rest of the world says, hey, we can make our case from the science. You Christians, you just believe things blindly. We don't believe something blindly. The gospel, as it's offered, is true. It's testable. Christianity is testable. We can determine if the accounts are reliable. And the promises of God, even about eternity and about salvation, are grounded in evidence. Jesus said it all the time. If you don't believe me, at least believe on the evidence of these miracles, which I did in front of you. Mm. We know this is true. Yeah, Jim, just such a delight. Yeah. Thank you so much, Peter. Incredible. Yeah. Just incredible. We really had a great time, yeah. and thank you so much for spending it with us. Have a great rest of the day, and I look forward to our, another discussion with you down the road. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Go to coldcasechristianity.com to learn more about Jim. That wraps up our show for the day. If you've been enjoying our series on salvation, and maybe you have placed your faith in Christ for the first time, I'd love to send you a new believer's Bible. If you have other questions, you can certainly email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. But if you have prayed to receive Jesus, I'd love to hear from you, bill at myfaithradio.com, and I'll get out a new believer's Bible to you. Have a great night, everyone. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.